Hey, can we lift up the Lord this morning? So grateful for our worship team leading us into his presence today. Grateful for you. Glad to be with you today. Take your Bibles and join me, if you don't mind, in the book of Ephesians. We're going to break the seal on chapter 6 today. We're in the final chapter of this book. Now, we got a ways to go, uh, but we've covered a lot of ground. And what we've covered in chapter 5, the Apostle Paul has introduced a concept uh, in that chapter, the all-important notion of being filled with the Spirit. And we saw that for the next several passages, we were going to see what that looked like in various contexts, in the church. What does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? Uh, in the home, uh, we're going to look at being filled with the Spirit in the workplace. And then after that, we're going to see what it means to engage in spiritual warfare. And so, but all of this is about being filled with the Spirit. And we've been looking at being filled in the home. We've looked at wives. We've looked at husbands. And today, we're going to look at children and parents. Let me ask you a question. Uh, have perspectives changed about raising children in this country? Have perspectives changed about the family with regard to the home and things like that. It used to be that uh, there was a pretty uniform appreciation for what the Judeo-Christian ethic had to say about raising a family. And a lot of that has changed over the years. I think it changed somewhere uh, just after the middle of the 20th century. I don't know if you're like me, you recall maybe watching old black and white reruns in syndication. Uh, shows like Leave it to Beaver. Shows like Father Knows Best. Ozzie and Harriet, and they all kind of had this common understanding of order in the home, that there's a father in that home, there's a mother, and the kids are called to a standard. And there was, you know, there were some hijinks that ensued with all of that, but there was an understanding of what that looked like. And then something changed in the next decade. I would say it was in the 1960s. Some of you were there, you remember the 60s. Some of you were there, and you don't frankly remember a whole lot about the 60s. What happened in the 60s? There was a revolution of sorts. They sort of did away with the absolutes, right and wrong, just kind of went, uh, went away. And uh, all that mattered was what we wanted, what, what, what every person wanted for themselves, what their desire was. There was a backlash against all different kinds of authority, uh, the government, the military, the police, the home, uh, the schools. And there was a sexual revolution. There was a moral revolt. And throughout all of this, the home just sort of deteriorated, and discipline went away, and the family just became this uh, biological, sociological phenomenon, and it was no longer a reflection of God the Father and of Christ the Son and of parents and children and order and structure, and you were left with a new paradigm. You were left with now a modern perspective on the family. What is the difference between a biblical perspective and the modern perspective? As we get started here in your notes, the biblical perspective, it starts with this. A child is conceived and born in sin. And we Christians recognize that because we believe in the Bible. And the Bible says in Psalm 51.5, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin did my mother conceive me. And so we know that coming into the world, we are not perfect. We are sinful. And some of you parents, when your kids are being little hellions, you're like, I believe that. That, is, that makes sense to me. But that is why 
In your notes, the second point under that worldview is we embrace that a child needs stubbornness broken through discipline. All right? Discipline. We're going to talk about discipline today. Why? Because the Bible talks about it in Proverbs 29, 17. It says, discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. What happens if you don't discipline your son, your child? In Proverbs 29, 15, it says, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. And so we don't leave kids to their own devices. And so this was generally accepted until there was the advent. There was a guy that came along named Dr. Spock. You remember Dr. Spock? I don't mean Spock, all right? I mean Dr. Benjamin Spock, uh, famed pediatrician. And he brought a new paradigm in, and this was kind of adopted as the modern perspective on family. And he said this in your notes, a child should not be disciplined but be given freedom to be who he or she is. Just be who you are, kids. Doesn't that sound nice? Sounds wonderful. Sounds kind of utopian, doesn't it? Uh, The only problem is if you are conceived in iniquity, born in sin, you you shouldn't be who you are. There's something wrong with who you are coming in because we are all fallen and we need shaping and we need molding. But today we're in kind of a rut because the home... The home is sort of a battleground, isn't it? Nobody really knows who's in charge. I've been in a lot of homes where it was pretty evident the parents are not in charge. They're not in charge. Some people say, well, the kids, the kids should be in charge. We need to listen to the younger generation. We need to listen to what they say, what they think, what they feel. We need to support that. We need to affirm whatever they think they want. Some people say, I think it's the system. The system is in charge. What does that mean? I'm reminded of the words of our dear president just a week or two ago. He said, there's no such thing as somebody else's kids. He said, "Uh, our nation's children are all our children, is what he said. And I'm like, no thanks. No, I'm good. My kids will be my kids. Okay, they're, they're not your kids. When the government says our, they don't mean you. They mean them. Is that true? Yes, and so as it's, as it's become apparent, there is a uh, worldly perspective at work. It's hazy. It's, it's gray. It's anything goes. How many of you agree with me? We need a little black and white in our world. We need a little clear delineation. Well, Paul, in this book of Ephesians, has been taking what's out of whack, and he's been bringing our understanding back to what God intends. And he says, this is what a family is. This is what a home is. This is what a wife is. He says, wives, submit to your husbands. This is what a husband is. Husbands, love your wives. Lay down your life for her. As Christ laid down his life for the church, this is what a parent is, what a child is. And so that's what we're looking at today because in this crazy, messed up world, we need some black and white. We need somebody to tell it like it is. And that's what the Apostle Paul is going to do today. Would you bow with me and pray? Heavenly Father, I just am so grateful for your word and I'm grateful that we've got a place where there are absolutes and we can go there and we can look and we can get clear direction Uh, And we are not left up to our own best guess. And so, God, I pray that as we study this today, that we who are parenting, who are struggling, that we will find a true north. And I pray for children that may be listening, that may hear this at a later time, perhaps through video or through mom and dad, that they will understand what their part is in all of this. And for those of us, God, who who have completed 
our role as a parent, that we've done all we can do, and now those, those birds have flown the nest, Lord. I pray that as we read, that when we see what we've done right, we will be affirmed, and when we see what we've done wrong, there'll be a gentle rebuke there, and it's all good because all truth is your truth, and we trust you for the results as we study in Christ's name, amen. And so Paul dives in here today in Ephesians chapter 6, right away, he begins by addressing the child in the Christian home. He says in verse 1, children, children. What is the demographic he's referring to here in verse 1? Well, in Jewish culture, a son stopped being a child at age 13. Now, that might sound crazy to you, but when a Jewish boy is 13, he's got a ceremony. It's called a bar mitzvah. And it is the moment where it is recognized that this boy is becoming a man. Now, some of you are thinking of your own kids, and I understand your offspring, a lot of them are much older than 13. Some of them are fully grown. You still think of them as your children, your babies. I get that. I'm just telling you, in this context right here, Paul's view is is of a window that closes much quicker than that. Dr. Dobson says, Christian psychologist named James Dobson, he says, you know, you really need to have a kid under control by age 12. That is terrifying some of you right now. You're thinking of your 12-year-old boy, and you're going, dear heavens, what am I going to do? Well, we don't give up, but the point here is this, that the window is very tight, and you need to take advantage of it to the fullest that you can to get control of your child early on. Proverbs 22, 6 says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And so a child is meant to learn. And so Paul is looking at the preteen years, uh, specifically right here. And he gives in your notes instructions to the Christian child. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Okay? Obey is where it begins. The Greek word for obey there means to learn or to listen underneath. And so he's saying that the Christian child is to bring themselves under the subordination of their parents, okay? You are to listen to mom and dad. Why? Uh, Because they've got experience and you have none. You have none. Uh, Proverbs 16, 31 says, gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. I have come to appreciate that verse more and more the older I've gotten. You know, I got, I got a little here, this gray, and I've, I've always had a little bit right there. I was at Costco in Greensboro yesterday. My wife and I went up to the sample table. Don't, can we just praise God for the sample table at Costco? And so I go up, and there's some goodies, and I take one. I say, thank you. And this lady, older lady, she goes, oh, you've got a little something right here. Oh, oh I thought that was food. She said, now, why would you want me to think you had food on your face? You should shave that. And I'm like... Thank you. You know? And so I got a little self-conscious. But look, gray hair is apparently a crown of glory. What does that mean when we have gray hair? It means we got, we've gotten beat up, and we've learned, and we have some wisdom to impart. You know, you can learn as much from my failures as you can my victories. So we can impart from our experiences, and the child is to obey. He says, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. What does that mean? It means that this is the way a Christian home should look. It's the way it should look. It it doesn't mean that everybody in that home is a Christian. It doesn't mean that you obey your parents 
if they are born again. It doesn't mean that you obey them if they're correct, if you, if you agree with what they're saying. It doesn't mean that you obey them because you love them. It means it's right to obey your parents. You obey them out of, out of obedience to the Lord. It's, it's right in the same way that it's right for a wife to submit to her husband even though he's not respectable. It's right in the same way uh, as it's right for a husband to love and lay down his life for his wife even though she doesn't may, maybe seem so lovable. Why do they do that? Out of obedience, as we've talked about in here, to the Lord. And so the Christian child is to be obedient unto God by being obedient to their parents. Okay, And by the way, we're not talking about uh, being obedient in, a, in an immoral command. All right, We have a higher authority. But ideally, God wants us to submit to those whom he has placed over us. And so there is an action for the Christian child in your notes. Number one, obey God by obeying your parents. That is the anchor. That's the anchor in the home. God has provided an order for that obedience. I want you to think of it this way. The Ten Commandments, you've got the first four. What is that in relation to? It has to do with our relationship to God. He is unique. There are no other gods. Have no other gods before him. Don't make any graven images. Don't take his name in vain. Keep the Sabbath holy, all right? So all about God. What do the last five commandments deal with? Our relationship to our fellow man, okay? We got to have respect for our fellow man, for his life, his wife, his stuff, okay? You, you aren't to covet. You aren't to steal from what that person has. So what is in between those two areas? You've got your relationship to God. You've got your relationship to your fellow man. What is that fifth commandment that's in between those two sections? Honor your father and mother, Honor your father and mother. Why is that the fulcrum between those two things? Because ideally, your mom and dad are the people who are to teach you about God and to teach you about your responsibilities to your fellow man. And that's why listening to them is important. That is his paradigm. And so we've got an action. And then we go from action to attitude. And Paul says in verse 2, he quotes actually from that commandment that we just referenced. He says, honor your father and mother. Which means, secondly, in your notes, that as the Christian child in that home, you are to respect the position that God has given your parents. You don't simply obey them, you see. You honor them and you obey them out of a recognition for the, the divinity of their position, that God has placed them over you. God is our father. He has brought fatherhood into the home. Motherhood is under the authority of fatherhood, and those work together, and they uh, move forward, uh, and they carry out joint commands in the home, and that is God's designed institution. I remember a comic strip. Comic strips are not that popular anymore. People don't read newspapers like they once did. You remember Dennis the Menace? Yeah, right, Dennis the Menace. So sometimes there'd be like a one-frame uh, comic of Dennis the Menace. Dennis was always getting in trouble, and so his mom would put him in the corner. He'd sit in a chair in the corner. Any of you have to sit in the corner when you did wrong growing up? So you sit in your little chair, you face the corner. So here's Dennis in this frame, and he's calling over his shoulder. He's not happy. He's like, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside, right? It, maybe that was you. Maybe that's your kids, right? Well, to obey, that action is to sit down on the outside, but to honor your parents for who they are, that is to sit down 
on the inside as well. Because a child's action must always be uh, coinciding with their attitude. You have to have reverence for your parents. That's what Paul says here. And so he quotes the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, but he quotes it in full. He goes on. He says, this is the first commandment with a promise. What is the promise? You got four commandments and this one comes along and now it's accompanied by a promise, which he says in verse three, is so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Well, that's a pretty good promise. That's a benefit right there. That's, that's straight out of Deuteronomy. And so in your notes, the reason a child obeys is not only that it's right, it's that it's beneficial. Could you benefit from having a long life? I think that's a good thing, right? And so this is a command that is best for you. It's in your best interest. You know what it means that you obey your parents, that you have a long life? It means that you're not going to die young because you're a fool. Your parents have some pretty beneficial things. They're not all moral instructions. Some of them are just like to keep you safe. Some of them are for your well-being. It's so you don't go play in traffic and such. You want to scare the dickens out of your kid? Here's a verse for you, okay? Proverbs 30, verse 17. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. All right, some of you mothers are writing that down. You're like, I'm going to lay that one on Junior tonight. You know, now what's the context here? So what this means is, uh, in Paul's day, if you were a capital murderer, you would be executed, and they would hang your body in public overnight, and then take it down the next day. And in the meantime, the birds would come, and they would take your eyes. And so the connotation here is that if you begin a life in rebellion early on, and you continue on in that pattern, in that path. The logical destination point is that you're going to come against the law. You're going to run afoul of that. You're going to land land in a slammer. You might be put to death because unchecked, that is what rebellion leads to. And so it's very important when you're a child that, that this is something that is abnormal to God to be in rebellion against your parents. And so it is incumbent upon the parents to, to be proactive and to see when correction is needed. And we, yes, discipline our children. It says in Proverbs 19, verse 18, discipline your son for there is hope. There's hope. Early on, there's hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. And so this says that uh, this is really meaning that a, a parent who is not prone to disciplining their child is complicit when that child proceeds to destroy themselves. And so parents have got to be on it. Proverbs 23, 14, it says, If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. Hebrew, Sheol, means hell. All right, You might not just be saving his life. You might be doing something that's going to set him up well for eternity that will, that will open his understanding to the things of the Lord. So you start early with a child. How many of you have seen a kid in public and they're just a little crazy Tasmanian devil? What's your first thought when they're being disrespectful and loud and boisterous and they're yelling at their mom and dad? You're like, that kid's got a long, hard life ahead of him. I, I, I see Leavenworth in their future, okay? And so if that continues, it's going to be a problem. Remember Toy Story, the movie Toy Story? What was the neighbor kid's name? Sid had the black T-shirt with the, the skull 
Maybe that's a sign of things to come. The skull on the front of that shirt, he's just this disrespectful, uh, rambunctious kid. He likes to torture the toys. He straps firecrackers to them and such. You, you see a cameo of Sid grown up in Toy Story 3. Because there's a local garbage man, and he's got a black t-shirt with a skull on it. And he's listening to headphones, and he's you know, got a head-banging thing going on in his head. and all that. It shows the trajectory. No offense to garbage men. My uncle's a garbage man. It's an honest line of work, okay? But you see, there is a trajectory for, for rascally, rebellious children, adults who struggle with, with certain sins. Where did it begin? It began when they were young. Adults who struggle with temporal values. Can kids be materialistic? Absolutely. So we got to teach them about eternal things. Uh, Adults who struggle with sexual impurity. What's the path that they get on when they don't learn, as Paul says, to buffet their body, to make it their slave, to deny themselves, to have discipline, right? They will succumb to immorality down the road if that's not uh, put under check. Uh, Adults who struggle with bitterness. Do kids ever hold grudges? Do kids need to learn how to forgive? They do. Adults with conscience issues, when they know that they've wronged others, but they can't look them in the eye. you got to teach kids to do that. When you're wrong, you admit it. You say you're sorry. You look somebody in the eye. But the biggest problem that can follow you into adulthood, when adults have a problem with authority, it started back when they were young. Kids need to have respect for the authority of parents, of teachers, of coaches, of the law. Because if they don't learn that, Pretty soon they're going to be an adult with those same problems. And they become abusive. And they become irresponsible. And so this refusal uh, to acknowledge authority is the root of all sin. Where did we first see that in in, in the Bible? Uh, Historically, it happened in heaven. Lucifer, I will be like the Most High. I will ascend above the stars. God's like, no, you won't. No. No, you are creation. I am creator. Don't you understand that? There is an order here. Well, there's an order in the family as well. You've got a father. You've got a mother. There are authorities that he has established in life that we all come underneath. We are all under the authority of the government. We're under the authority of teachers, employers, different institutions that he has put into place. Nobody gets to be their own authority. Everybody has to submit. God has modeled this. We see it in the Trinity. The Son submits to the Father. The Spirit submits to the Son. And kids need to submit. Why? Because they're fallen. They're imperfect. Okay? Even when they're babies, they're imperfect. Some people are like, oh, look at this baby. Isn't he just perfect? Uh, Are his parents perfect? Well, no. Well, then he's not perfect either. We come in imperfect. All right, there's no such thing. If Adam and Eve had never sinned, we might get a picture of a perfect child. But they did, and so we don't. And we're all imperfect from the beginning, no matter how cute we might be. Uh, my wife and I have made some cute kids. We've made some cute babies. They need correction, and they needed it early on, even while they were still cute. I've got a boy, my youngest son, Grayson. Man, he was a cute little Sucker when he was kid, when, uh, little, when he was a toddler, you know. But even back then, it became apparent very early that we had to step in and show him right and wrong, good and bad, profitable and not profitable. When he was very little, we got a German shepherd, and she was a rescue. Her name was Sam. And I just want to show you a picture of Sam. Here's a picture of Sam. And there's Grayson. 
let them do what they think is right, they say. No, no. And so we had to show them, no, son, you don't, you don't drink from, from, from Sam's bowl. That's not good, you know. And, and that isn't the last time he would need instruction. A little, little while later, here's this picture here. He got his potty lid stuck on his head. Okay. Uh, I didn't expect to have to tell him not to do that. But uh, okay, so there he is. He's going to kill me. Anyway, we can move on from that shot. Uh, now... We, we laugh at that, and that is cute, but you don't want him doing that when he's 30, right? And so you take the opportunity when they're very young, and that's where parents come in. And so now Paul shifts his focus from the child to the parents. And so we read in verse 4, Paul speaks to the parents, but he says, fathers, fathers. Now, we don't see mothers here. How come? Well, he did address fathers and mothers in verse 2, so we know they're in the mix here, but it's in keeping with this concept of order in the home, and so we know that the, the father is the captain of the home. I know there's a lot of criticism on the, the patriarchy today. People, that patriarchy has become sort of a dirty word. What does it mean? It means in the Latin, patrus arcade, the father rules. And so that, that gets rejected and, and shunned today. Let me, let me very, be very clear about this. This is a valid biblical paradigm for the home with the father at the head of the home. The mother carries out designs. The father is, is at the head. He is not to be an absentee father. He's to be integrally involved. I realize there are single moms here. I acknowledge you. I see you. I understand your job is very, very difficult, all right? Uh, and in your, in your context, you are the lone parental authority in the home. All I want to say is it's not God's best design. It's not his ideal set forth in Scripture. In your case, it is where, what it is. You are where you are, and you've got to adopt these rules. But it's going to be a challenge for you, and I recognize that. So we're not ignoring mothers. This is guidance for all parents. We're just setting up the divine order here. And so he says, dads, here's what you don't do. And he says, do not exasperate your children. That is every child's favorite Bible verse right there. <laughs> do not exasperate. Some versions say, don't provoke your children to wrath, to anger. Okay? What does that mean? Here's what it means in your notes. Number one, for parents, your goal is not to make your child mad. You might have a typo on your handout, but it's supposed to be your goal is not to make your child mad, all right? Now, notice I didn't say that your goal is to not make your child mad. See, just move the words around a little bit and you get a whole different thing. You're going to make your child mad. That's called parenting, all right? It's just that that's not your primary objective. It's, it's a reality that goes with parenting that your, your kids are going to be mad at you from time to time. But do not see that as mission accomplished. If you're mad at me, I'm doing my job. This is, this is to say don't parent out of anger. Do we ever do that? Yeah, I do that. I do that. But that's not how I'm supposed to do it, you see. You don't parent out of anger because when we parent out of anger, what do we often produce? We produce more anger. We produce more anger. And so you, you don't want to govern through anger. Some people just think my job is to tear my kid down, take him down a few notches, mission accomplished. No, no. Your goal is to not gravitate toward anger. I, I, I think maybe Paul addresses dads here because that's kind of our default. 
right? He says, no, no, don't do that. Rather, instead, he says, bring them up. Bring them up. What does that mean? Bring them up is the Greek word ektrepho. I don't know if you remember from last week, we, we saw that word. It was translated in English as nourish. Nourish, ektrepho. It means to feed. We get the word trough, ektrepho. Uh, what are you doing? You are nourishing your kids. You're bringing them up. You're fattening them up. With what? With love, with wisdom, with counsel, okay? And the goal here is not to tear them down. The goal is to make something of them. What are you making? Number two in your notes, your goal is to make your child a disciple. A disciple. That's your goal. Your goal is not to make them mad. Your goal is to make them a disciple. How do you do that? He says you bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And so this verse breaks discipleship down into two categories, training and instruction, okay? How do you define those? Well, in your notes, training can be summed up as stop doing what's wrong. Stop doing what's wrong. That means that in your parenting, there are going to be rules. There's going to be some regulations. There's going to be some chastening in your parenting, is there, are there rules in your parenting? Huh? If there's not, you're pursuing bad parenting. That's, that's poor parenting if you have no rules. So training has kind of a, a, a negation vibe here. Uh, this, this is discipline. There are rules. You recall that in Jewish culture, a boy is only a child up to like age 13. So you got a window where you train your kid and you say, we don't do this. You tell your child no. Some parents have never learned how to say no to their kid. They've learned to never say no. And, and they, they try to reason with their kid. Some people are like, well, I want my, I want my child to be a critical thinker. They're not going to be a critical thinker right now. Their brains are not formed for that right now. Children are sponges. You've got to put content and information in there. You speak very black and white to children. We don't do this. We don't do this. You train them up. When you take a kid to the ocean, you don't let them figure out the depth of the water on their own and watch them sink like a rock. You say, you go this far and no farther. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay, we don't eat sand. Okay, that's not good, right? You train them. And so it's a negation. That's, that's training, but it's not just negation. There's instruction as well. Instruction can be summed up as not just stop doing what's wrong, but go do what's right. Go do what's right. You don't merely teach a kid what's wrong. You teach them what's right. This is the positive element of discipleship. The Greek word here for instruction is nous, which means mind. Uh, we get no to no. Gnosis is from this as well. And tithemi, tithemi means to place in. Nous, tithemi, meaning you're putting something into their mind. You're not letting them go where their mind presently tells them to go. You are putting content and information into their mind so they have a standard. Nous tithemi. Nuthetic counseling is biblical counseling. That's where you, you, you don't teach someone, you don't tell them to go within themselves to know the best way. No, you, you, you don't discern on your own. You go outside of your own uh, limited finite knowledge and you go to the standard you're called to a standard and so that's what this form of discipleship in the home is to look like training stop here instruction go here 
And this is what Deuteronomy is talking about. Chapter 6, verse 7, it says, You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. That's a formal setting right there. You need, uh, you need some standard time where you're expecting to have an audience with your kids and you, you are intentional about that. But also when you walk by the way. That's an informal time. When you lie down, when you rise. So when you're out and about and you're seeing these moments, you see teachable moments with your child. And you take the opportunity to impart truth, to impart wisdom, to teach a lesson and to educate them. And you've got to do this. I mean, I, re- I remember uh, very young, my dad taking moments like that. He, we went to the beach as a family, and I remember building a sandcastle with my dad, and he picked up a handful of sand, and, and, and he says, son, hey, Scotty, look at this. You see all these grains of sand? You know what this makes me think of? God told Abraham that he would make his descendants like the grains of sand on the shore. Just look how many grains of sand are in my hand. Now look at, look at the shore. You see all that? Man, he, doesn't that show us how good God is, that he could make a promise like that? And isn't God going to keep that promise? Yeah, he's going to keep it. So I remember that. I'm almost 50 years old. I still remember that. He didn't plan on telling me that that day. He saw an opportunity. He took it. And I, it stuck with me. And so you teach and educate your child, but you do it early. If you tarry, you're going to be up the creek. It's, it's going to be very difficult if you wait until they're grown, to try to impart truth to them. Think of Samson. Samson had a few issues. He told his parents when he was grown, he's like, go get that Philistine girl for me. I want to marry her. They're like, Samson, isn't there a a girl among your own people that's not a pagan, that worships our God, that's, that's not corrupt? Isn't there a girl that you can marry here? No! I want that Philistine girl. Samson, is that the best idea? And, and they couldn't get it done. Why? Too late. On the contrast, when we think about you got to hit this window that's so tiny, 12 years, can it be done? Can we raise a child sufficiently in 12 years? Moses' parents did. Moses' parents did. Hebrews eleven twenty three 23 says Moses was hidden away by his parents for three months. You know why? Because the Pharaoh decreed that all the Hebrew male children should be killed. They didn't want an uprising. And so his parents hid him away. But they knew we can't do this indefinitely. And the authorities started to close in. And so Moses' mother put him in a pitch-lined basket, sent him down the Nile. And he's discovered by none other than the Pharaoh's daughter. And she takes pity on him, loves him, wants to raise him as her own child. But she knows nothing about child-rearing. And God has sovereignly placed his own sister, Miriam, there to say, I know a Hebrew lady that could raise him for you. And so God divinely gives him back to his mama, who then gets to raise him, but not forever. Very finite window of time that she gets him. We know that she weans him, and after the nursing phase, she had him probably as a toddler. Maybe beyond that, we don't really know. We don't read, but it's, it's, a, it's a limited amount of time. And then it says in Exodus 2, verse 10, that when the child grew older, I'd say maximum 12 years, he is returned to the Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So here's Moses. Now he's part of the royal family. He lives in a palace. He's got everything he wants. He can do whatever he wants. Does that kid have the potential to be spoiled 
Absolutely. Does that kid have the potential to, to become rotten and to be able to take advantage of his position in that royal family to do whatever he wants? Is anybody going to question that? No. And yet, what do we learn in Hebrews eleven twenty four? By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. I don't know how long his parents had him, but they made it count. They poured into that kid. They loved him. They taught him. They taught him the ways of Yahweh. They taught him about his upbringing. They taught him about his his heritage. They taught him about the promises of God. And it stayed with him. And he grew up. And just like Proverbs tells us, when you teach a child in the way he should go when he is old, he will not depart from it. And that's not easy when we think about it as parents. I've struggled as a dad. I know that you struggled as parents, but I think there are some very practical things that we can do. You're like, I got all this 30,000 foot view stuff. What's something practical? You want some practical stuff? This isn't all for me. I've picked this up from some other places. It's not in your notes. If you want to jot it down, I think it's helpful. Here are some tips in raising your kids. Number one, read to them. Read to them and read something of value. Okay, read something of value. Read the Bible. We had children's Bibles in our house. Our kids love them. And they beg to be read to. They beg for a Bible story. Okay, but you don't have to read just the Bible. You can read other things. There's other things with merit that you can read to your kids that have moral principles, chronicles of Narnia, some such. Uh, But yeah, read to your kids. Secondly, pray with them. You pray with your children. You make a point at dinner, you pray. For your meal, you pray at bedtime. You take opportunities to pray with them and let them watch you pray so they learn how to pray. Number three, let them watch you read the Bible. Don't just read with them, but let them see you read the Bible. Do you spend time in the Bible? Huh? Uh, You know, what's really cool, my oldest son is 18. He's away at college. He's in Missouri. When he's on a break, he goes to my parents' house, and my mother, uh, without him knowing it, has snapped a picture or two of his little devotion station in the morning at the kitchen table in their house, and I see his study Bible open and his cup of coffee right there, and it just makes me feel so happy uh, as a dad that he's reading the Bible and that he's drinking coffee, you know? <laughs> he's, more, he's like me in more than one way. Uh, but, but I just, man, what a relief, too, that my son is studying the Word of God. Some of the sweetest convos that he and I have had over the phone have been about things that he's read in the Scripture, and he just wants to talk. He just wants to call up Dad, talk it over. And what a sweet thing that is. And you know, in our house on Saturday night, my youngest kids, they take baths. You know why? Because Sunday we go to church. And that's number four. Take your kids to church. Go to church. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Scripture says this is what God's people do. This is an institution that lasts. If you take them to church when they're young, they'll take their kids to church. This is a habit they need to have. I realize you're not going to make it every weekend. I realize there are things that come up. I realize there are events. There are things that your kids are involved in where there's a special event or something that we're going to miss this week and you go. But, and I understand that. I've done that. Okay, but don't let events and programs and sports keep your kid away from church. You you have to show them this is a priority. This is something that's important to God. 
Some of you are like, well, it's baseball, it's baseball, and we got to be gone during baseball. Listen, I love sports. I'm all for kids doing sports, okay? But if sports keep your, your child away from learning the things of the faith and from growing in the community that God has ordained, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Here's the truth. Your, your kid, odds of your kid becoming a pro athlete, slim to none. Sorry, okay? Seriously, I'm, I'm just telling you the truth. Odds of your child needing a deep, profound relationship with Jesus Christ and habits that are formed by being with God's people, 100%. 100%. And so you, you take them to church. Number five, talk with them about life. Talk with them about people. Talk with them about manners. Take those moments that I've talked about. You know, we have a police officer uh, on campus every weekend here. We're blessed to have them here to keep us safe. You know, you could say, hey, son, hey, Daughter, see that? That's a police officer. They are our authority. They have a badge. That badge means something. We honor them. They're here to keep us safe. We respect them. We don't cross them. Uh, listen to your teacher at school. He or she is your authority. You need to do what they say. I know you hate math. I did too. But turn your assignments in on time as instructed. Don't look on somebody else's paper. You do the work. Say thank you. Say yes, sir. No, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Please. May I? All of these things. And then number six, and this is the tough one for us as parents, be consistent in your own life. Man, be consistent. How many of you know your kids are watching you? Are they watching? Are they listening? Where did you learn that word? from you right they're very attentive and they see your inconsistencies I saw my parents inconsistencies but you know what I saw their consistencies too and so I know you've blown it I've blown it too in front of them and it's all and you know what I've apologized to my kids for things because my wife says you better apologize I'm like okay right but don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. You just try to be as consistent as you can. And it's not all dependent on your own actions. You need to ask the Lord to empower you to be consistent. And then here's number seven. These don't all come from me, but this one does. And I make no apologies for it. Number seven, limit electronic devices. All right? There's next to no reason your preteen needs a cell phone. There's no good that can come of that. Uh, there's no good that can come from a, a kid sitting on a device all the live long day. And I promise you, you're like, well, uh, but they really want one. Listen, I promise you that when, when they are grown and you're not parenting directly anymore, you are not going to look back on their childhood and regret that you didn't let your preteen have a phone. You're just not going to regret that. Okay? That's all I'll say on the matter. All right. Number eight. Number eight, when all the steps fail, get the spoon. Get the spoon. In my house, and I'm not ashamed to admit this, we spank. We spank our kids, okay? Now, I don't always have to spank. If I can avoid it, I do. But sometimes it's necessary, and there's a right way to do it, and I'll talk about that in a second. But how many of you got spankings when you were growing up? How many of you deserved it? Okay, wait, there were more hands the second time. That was weird. How many of you are not currently in prison because you got spankings growing up, right? Now, you remember this? Son, this is gonna hurt me 
more than it'll hurt you. I, I used to think, you liar, <laughs> right? Now I get it. I fully understand that because it's not fun. It's not fun, but I got spankings. My, my dad spanked me. My mom spanked me. I would rather my dad have spanked me. My mom could clear leather faster than Wyatt Earp, all right? Uh, occasionally, it was a belt because that that's always on you, and so you use that device. But we had this thing, my family. Um, when I was a kid, we went to an amusement park in Missouri called Silver Dollar City. Kind of had this 1880s vibe. They had woodworking shops there, and my parents bought uh, a, a hand-carved paddle. And on that paddle, it said, Board of Education, <laughs> which I assume was for the seat of knowledge, you know? And it was this, it was a souvenir is what it was. It was supposed to be this kitschy thing that you hang on the wall and people go, oh, look at that. Isn't that clever? Isn't that clever? For my parents, it was a practical implement of discipline. They used the board of education. It hung on a hook in the kitchen. And whenever I got out of bounds, man, I got the board and I never got it anywhere, but on the seat, the seat of knowledge. Okay. Uh, now, that was my upbringing. I have a younger brother. He's a lot younger than me. He's like 14, 15 years younger than me, named Caleb. And when he was pretty young, he'd gotten a few spankings, and he decided that he'd had enough of the Board of Education. So just as a little knocker, he goes in the kitchen, pulls up a stool, gets on there, takes the board off the hook, and throws it in the trash. And out it went. And no one was the wiser in my house. But he wasn't too smart because then my mom one day, after he had sassed her, he says, okay, young man, that's it. You're getting a spanking. He goes, nuh-uh. You can't spank me. I threw the paddle away. See, he didn't know that moms have this ability to turn any household device into a butt-whooping weapon, all right? Shoes, spoons. You know, uh, somebody, somebody told me a fly swatter. I don't know. Listen, some of you might be a little, you're like, yeah, well, this isn't my upbringing. This isn't how I do this right now. I get that. Some people get really uptight about this topic of corporal discipline in the home. They consider it barbaric. They might think it's backward. Listen, here's what the word of God says on this. In Proverbs 13, 24, it says, whoever spares the rod, what is that? I think we know what the rod is. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. You've heard spare the rod, spoil the child? That's not in the Bible. This is in the Bible. If you spare the rod, you hate your son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. You see, this is not abuse. You never want to strike your child on their face, anywhere else on their body. But you know what? In the interest of correction. In the interest of loving my child and wanting them to choose the right course of action or, or training them up in the way that they should go, I can concentrate a very small amount of pain onto an area that's 12 or 18 inches. Okay? Right back here. It will sting for a minute. But the benefit could be for a lifetime. Because they're either going to cry for seconds... Or if I don't discipline them at all, one day they're going to cry for weeks at a time because of decisions that they make. You train your child out of love. It's the right thing to do because 
you're making something. You're not tearing them down. You're making something. What are you making? You're making a disciple, an adult who honors the Lord because of how they were raised, because train them up in the way that they should go so that when they are old, they don't depart from it, and they honor the Lord. And that's no easy task. And you don't have to do it on your own. Not because we're a village, but because of this concept that Paul introduced in the last chapter, be filled with the Spirit. You want to be a better parent? You ask God to fill you every day with His Spirit so that you don't parent in anger, so that you don't avoid confrontation because it's easy. No, you see with God's eyes and you implement what God has instituted so that you've got a family that is by God's design. And you rely on his might, his wisdom, his power to help you be the parent that God has designed for you to be. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for the black and white nature of your word. I thank you, Lord, that, that you, give us, you give us rules. I'm so grateful that we don't have to come up with our best guess to approach life all the time, that there are things that are beneficial in your word. I'm grateful that the word of God is here and that we can look to it, that you have provided this roadmap. And God, it's not easy to be a parent. I confess my shortcomings as a dad, God, but there's grace. And Lord, for anyone who's here today who, who, who looks back and they say, I've messed up, I didn't know what I was doing, God, I pray that you would, you would uh, just, just show them the way, how to move forward in life in a manner that is honoring to you. Because what you want for all of us is a fully formed disciple, and that can't happen apart from the indwelling, filling power of the Holy Spirit. So we ask your blessing upon every person in this room today, and we go in peace in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.